When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, during Sleep Number's President's Day sale, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed plus special financing for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. See store for details. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's what you'll need to know. Asia Alert, rising COVID cases force Malaysia, Indonesia, and Australia to act. Tesla Tempest, nearly every car made in China is recalled. And crypto clampdown, regulators in the UK and Canada target one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. It's Monday, let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move this Monday and a special reopening revelations edition of the program. The president of Resorts World Las Vegas joins us to discuss its big opening week. The first new casino on the Strip in over a decade, in fact. My personal favorite tidbit of this, cashless betting technology. We'll discuss later in the show. Are you feeling lucky? Well, the cruise industry is its anchor away for the CEO of Royal Caribbean, who joins us aboard Celebrity Edge the first voyage from the U.S. shores since the pandemic began. And smooth sailing for the U.S. majors, too, after last week's gains. Europe a little bit softer this Monday as investors brace for a highly eventful, let's call it a peerless week. P stands for petrol. OPEC Plus meets Thursday to discuss supplies. E stands for end of quarter trading and with earnings season just around the corner. Second E, employment. We have the latest U.S. non-farm payrolls numbers on tap on Friday. And R is for records. Yes, the S&P 500 beginning the week at all-time highs once again. Meanwhile, a quiet session in Asia with new numbers showing Chinese corporate profits easing due to surging commodity prices, that hitting the bottom line, and rising COVID cases in the region weighing on sentiment too. And that is where we begin the drivers. Sydney and other areas in Australia are now under lockdown as new COVID-19 clusters continue to grow. Other nations in the region, including Bangladesh and Malaysia, also struggling with the surge in infections. Ivan Watson has been exploring all the details. Ivan, great to have you on the show. Let's start with Australia first. It's this dual challenge of rising number of variants around the world and fewer or few vaccines having been delivered. Talk us through what we're seeing. Yeah, I mean, arguably Australia is a victim of its own success. It's only had 900 some odd deaths due to COVID over the last 18 months. 
and it has been successful at, at keeping the infection numbers down with contact tracing, with strict uh, controls at its borders. Uh, but now there are outbreaks taking place. The worst right now is uh, in New South Wales, around the largest city, Sydney, which only had, I think, another 18 new cases overnight, but the authorities are warning that they really expect this to spread their issuing stay-at-home orders because, of course, they're talking about a much more contagious variant of the disease than the one that they've dealt with over the last year and a half. Take a listen to the top official in that state. And we also have to be prepared for the numbers to go up considerably because as experience shows with this strain, we are seeing uh, almost 100% of transmission within households and we're seeing a very high rate of transmissibility. Western Australia, the cities of Perth and Peel have just announced a four-day circuit breaker kind of shut down after cases of the new Delta variant were detected there, after a case was detected. And one of the key problems here is that Australia's vaccination rate is almost last among developing countries, developed countries, economies. Uh, below 5% of the population is fully vaccinated. So even though they've been so good at kind of beating back uh, the virus until now, the population is still very, very vulnerable, and we have a much more contagious uh, variant that's out there, and that's why the authorities are really sounding the alarm in the Northern Territory as well. Julia? Yeah, I mean, so successful to your point about controlling the virus, but it didn't mean that you could ease back in any way on purchasing those vaccines, particularly as those variants and, and greater infectious versions of this um, virus spread. What about elsewhere? I mean, I mentioned Indonesia, Malaysia. I can see Thailand, too, announcing uh, new restrictions in Bangkok as well. Yeah, I mean, surges of uh, infections in all of these countries and governments that are trying to respond by imposing different kinds of restrictions. Uh, an interesting fact about Indonesia is, though, it has been breaking daily records over the course of the last week for new infections. Uh, we're seeing reporting from Reuters that the health minister wanted more restrictions and was basically overruled on that. The, the country has had these kind of hot zones and they impose kind of some restrictions there, but not imposing a much more national thing or across the, the most populous island uh, of Java. Uh, then you have Malaysia, which is extending its own national lockdown with some 5,800 cases detected on Saturday. Authorities saying they're not going to ease those restrictions unless they go below 4,000 new cases a day. Bangladesh has imposed some really tight restrictions uh, because the numbers are surging there. They're deploying the army along with the police to help with uh, the crackdown on, on travel. We've seen scenes of people rushing for ferries, for example, uh, trying to get a ride out of the city, uh, acknowledging the fact that public transport will be shut down. And Thailand also uh, still uh, having trouble with their own infection rates, uh, announcing that they're going to reimpose restrictions in and around Bangkok. It just goes to show that this virus is not going away. It still presents a, a major health challenge. And some of the warnings in Indonesia are ominous. Some of the, the organizations, the health organizations, medical organizations saying, hey, if we don't take this more seriously, we're going to look the way India did in April and May. And it does appear from the reporting that the national government is is holding back at this stage, even as we're hearing accounts of hospitals and intensive care wards overwhelmed. Yeah, Julia. it gives me goosebumps. And we need to get those vaccines spread all around the world. 
to uh, the point that we were discussing with the World Bank last week as soon as possible. Ivan, thank you for keeping on top of that for us. Ivan Watson there. All right, staying in Asia and the Chinese tempest at Tesla. Tesla announcing the recall of almost 300,000 vehicles to fix what regulators are calling autopilot software issues. A potential setback to Tesla in one of its biggest markets and not the way Elon Musk wanted to spend his 50th birthday. Paula Monica joins me now and happy birthday, Elon Musk. Not the present that he was looking for. I guess the one upside, Paul, and it is almost all the cars that they've delivered in China in total. The one upside is when you sell a computer on wheels, a software fix can be done remotely and doesn't require physically bringing these vehicles back to wherever they can be fixed. Exactly, Julia. This is not as big of a worry for Tesla and the birthday boy, Elon Musk, because of that very fact. Uh, Having a car recalled when it is a software issue that can be fixed via download means that consumers don't have to bring them back to uh, where they purchased the car and have it fixed and taken off the road for an extended period of time. So I think that is one reason why Tesla stock isn't really down all that much today on this news. But over uh, the past uh, few months, Tesla's stock has lagged both the broader market. It's down this year and it's really way behind what Ford and GM have done uh, because they are rapidly catching up in the world of electric. And, uh, you know, I think everyone realizes that Tesla's success has put a target on Tesla's back. And, you know, other companies want to try and sell as many electric vehicles around the globe as possible. I mean, it's a vitally important market for Tesla, let's to be clear, and it's proving a difficult one. I believe we've now got five regulatory agencies looking at the quality of the Model 3 cars that are coming out of its uh, Shanghai factory here. And Dan Ives, who's on the show a lot, said, just to give you a sense of the numbers here, China could represent 40 percent of global deliveries for Tesla by next year. So you've got to get this right if you're Tesla and you're looking at some of the challenges in China. What are we seeing in terms of numbers and demand there? Is it having an impact on demand? Julia, without question, this is a major concern for Tesla and it could be a headache if the problems persist because you did have Tesla sales in China fall pretty dramatically in April. And I think part of it was some of these uh, you know, concerns, consumer backlash, particularly in Shanghai, to the problems that the company was having uh, with the issues related to uh, the cruise control system, to brakes, as some uh, uh, drivers were reporting, and rivals took advantage of that. You saw sales for companies like Xpeng and Li Auto uh, you know, picking up in um, you know, the past uh, you know, couple of uh, months. They did stay stabilize in May, though. Tesla sales did rebound. So rivals like Neo and Xpeng were able to get maybe a short term blip, but not a huge sales spike at the expense of Tesla. Yeah. Paul, great to have you with us for that update there. Thank you, Paul and Monica. All right. UK regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, has targeted one of the world's largest crypto exchanges. It's banned Binance from offering certain products and services in Britain. 
The FTA doesn't regulate the actual sales of cryptocurrencies, though, but it can ban crypto-related derivatives and securities. Claire Sebastian fortunately joins us on this story. I read so much material, Claire, about this at the weekend, and a lot of it was deeply confused, deeply confusing, and some of it was wrong, quite frankly. So can we just ascertain what the FCA did here, what's banned and what's not, and who's banned, quite frankly? Yeah, that's the tricky bit, Julia, is that we're talking about a, a sort of a different legal entity and also the difference between regulated and unregulated activities in the UK. So what this ruling, this statement on Saturday from the Financial Conduct Authority actually does is it says that Binance Markets Limited, which is a, a sort of UK subsidiary of Binance, which is based in the Cayman Islands, that they are barred from conducting any what they call regulated activity in the UK. Now, as you noted, regulated activity does not include the sort of simple sale, buying and selling of cryptocurrency. It includes things like anything classed as a security, an option, a derivative, things like that. Uh, now, the, the other tricky bit is that Binance actually says that Binance Markets Limited has not actually started any activity uh, in the UK. And as such, this doesn't change anything that they're doing at the moment. It's a separate legal entity. It has not started its UK business as of yet. The company is saying on Twitter, our relationship with our users has not changed. Now, that uh, is, is true from this. Binance.com is based in the Cayman Islands, so not regulated by the FCA. That website uh, is continuing to operate in the UK. But this is still a, a crackdown of sorts by UK authorities, a crackdown, if you will, on future activity. Binance had wanted to set up a, a UK crypto marketplace. This bars it from doing that. It's also prevented from advertising regulated products in the UK. So, so it is in the sense of the broader regulatory crackdown uh, that we've seen. It is a part of that and, of course, significant because Binance is one of the largest exchanges in the world, Julia. Yeah, I believe they'd applied for permission and then withdrew that permission because, to your point, they are tightening up uh, some of the restrictions on what you're allowed to do and what you aren't allowed to do. But to your point, if they're not already in action here, then it's a sort of moot point. But the point and the premise here is that we're not just seeing this in the UK, we're seeing this all around the world. And while it didn't seem to have any real impact on the prices of some of these digital assets or these cryptocurrencies, I think the message is here that regulation is coming, even if it's at a relatively slow and steady pace. Yeah, slow and steady, but but accelerating, I think, because right. you know, throughout the history of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, regulation has been a, a sort of constant specter that has, you know, from time to time impacted the price. Bitcoin, as you say, uh, up slightly today. But in terms of Binance, we've seen other uh, authorities moving in. Uh, they got a warning from Japanese regulators on Friday that they might not be authorized to operate in the country. They've pulled out of Ontario uh, in Canada because of a regulatory crackdown there. And, and on a broader level, of course, we've seen Chinese authorities really crack down recently on things like mining uh, and payments in the US. We're seeing the Fed uh, ramp up scrutiny. The, the, there's, there's talk of more tax oversight from the Biden administration. So this is really coming. But it's on two levels now, Julia. It's on the one hand, trying to sort of rein in activity. But on the, on the other hand, with, with things like CBDC, central bank uh, digital coins, it looks like authorities are sort of trying to, 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 to join in, to be a part of this, an acknowledgement that you can't regulate this away anymore. Yeah, you can't regulate this way anymore. And of course, those in the industry would say this is a good thing because the more you can bring this into the light, uh, the greater the number of people that will be involved and feel comfortable actually getting engaged in this sector. Mm. Thank you for that, Claire Sebastian, shedding light and understanding on what was a very confusing story over the weekend. Claire, thank you. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. 
The death toll from the tower collapse in Florida has risen to nine, with 152 people still unaccounted for. Search and rescue efforts have expanded, with one official calling it the largest operation the state has seen for a non-hurricane response. Rescuers from Israel have arrived to help, and Mexico is sending its own team in on Monday. CNN's Rosa Flores is with us now from Surfside, Florida. Rosa, great to have you with us. Um, the search continues clearly, and for loved ones, I think the hopes and prayers that even five days later, miracles do happen and that some of these people may still be found alive. You're absolutely right. Hope is very much alive still here, uh, Julia. Uh, there's a reunification center for families, um, and, and we know that there's a lot of praying going on. Those families were allowed to come to the site of the collapse, which is where I am. They were allowed to do that yesterday, and it was a very important moment for these families because uh, imagine they were able to actually be as close to their loved ones as they could be. They could observe what was going on on this pile of rubble and they could also pray, which was very important for these families. What we know about the search and rescue right now is that there's about 400 personnel that are dedicated to this search at any point in time. There's about 200 on the actual site. Search and rescue crews are using a grid pattern to search and a process called delayering. Um, that's why you're seeing large pieces of concrete being peeled from this debris site to try to get through those layers um, of concrete looking for signs of life. Um, the weather was better yesterday and that helped uh, the, the rescue efforts. A fire that had been causing a lot of trouble was contained yesterday as well and so that also helped. Um, but as you mentioned, the death toll increasing to nine. About 152 people are unaccounted for. We're learning all of this as um, we're getting more information about a 2018 report that was issued in October of that year that describes some of the structural issues um, that this, that this uh, building um, had. And so this is raising a lot of questions about who knew what when and what was done about it and what was not done about it. To summarize it for you, uh, this report says that the building had major structural issues, that there was exposed and deteriorating rebar, that the waterproofing in this building along the pool was beyond its useful life, that it needed to be repaired. If it didn't get repaired soon, it would create exponential deterioration that was three years ago. Um, the, one of the engineers that inspected this building last year talked to CNN, and here's what he saw. Take a listen. I saw cracks in the stucco facade. I saw deterioration of the concrete balconies. I saw cracks and deterioration of the garage and plaza level. But those are all things that we're accustomed to seeing, and that's why our job exists to maintain and repair the buildings. You're accustomed to seeing any cause for alarm in what you saw. At what I saw, no. There could have been construction errors, construction defects, there could have been design errors or design defects. There was uh, maintenance or repairs that needed to be performed. Um, you know, all of those things together likely contributed to uh, what happened here. And Julia, regarding the investigation, it's important to note that homicide detectives are working alongside search and rescue crews. These detectives are collecting evidence as they go, because at the end of the day, one very important part of all of this is going to be about giving those families that are waiting for their loved ones answers about exactly what happened. And so we're seeing that these um, 
both the investigation and the rescue efforts are happening in tandem. Julia? Yeah, the fact that flags were raised three years ago just adds another layer of heartbreak, I think. The search for more questions goes on. Rosa, thank you for that, and thank you for all the work you've been doing. Just an incredible job. Rosa Flores there. All right, you're watching First Move. More to come. Welcome back to First Move, where we're sailing into a post-pandemic future, we hope. After more than 15 months, the first American cruise ship is now back at sea. Royal Caribbean's celebrity Edge cast away from Fort Lauderdale, Florida over the weekend, and CNN's Natasha Chen is on board. In many ways, this is a very typical cruise experience. You've got a casino, you've got jewelry shops, but there are signs of cruising in a pandemic era. Hand sanitizer stations everywhere you look. And you can hear the band in the background, but if you take a look around, there aren't that many people sitting. There are no crowds here, and that is because this cruise is sailing at not even 40% capacity. So many passengers told us how excited they are to be back, and the crew told us they were getting emotional on the day of departure from Fort Lauderdale. Here's Captain Kate McHugh talking about what a big moment this is. That was a moment that this is real. It really hit me, though, when we dropped all lines, when we came off the pier uh, with our guests on board, because that seemed so natural that it made the last 15 months a bit of a blur, a bit of a dream, um, and it, not a nightmare at all, because we did have an opportunity to do things on board the ship that we wouldn't have been able to if we were in service. Now out here on the pool deck, you can also see there aren't that many people splashing around, a lot of empty chairs, and that's another sign of the reduced capacity on this ship. Reduced capacity could go on for many months, according to CEO Richard Fain. In an interview, he told us protocols may adapt over time as we continue to emerge from this pandemic. With this being the first ship to depart a U.S. port in more than 15 months, Fain told us he'd rather do it right than do it fast. Natasha Chen, CNN, on the Celebrity Edge somewhere in the Gulf of Mexico. And that was a perfect introduction to our next guest, because joining us now is he himself, the Royal Caribbean Chairman and CEO, Richard Fain. Richard, fantastic to have you on the show. I'm sure it feels like one heck of a journey to get to this point. Just describe how it feels to see some of these ships back floating out there and people aboard. Oh, it's so exciting to be on board and to feel the excitement. Um, everybody's happy. Uh, the, the guests are overjoyed. And, and I'm really pleased because the crew are just so, so ecstatic to be here. So it's been a long 15 months. It's emotional to be back here in operation. But this is the first cruise out of the U.S. and we're back. You certainly are. Talk to me about capacity, because what we were seeing there seemed to be a lot of empty deck chairs, far more space than I think people traditionally who've also been on cruises will come to expect. What kind of numbers of people compared to pre-pandemic are you actually having aboard? Um, Well, we have limited our capacity in the beginning because, frankly, just like any new ship introduction, we always like to give the crew time to... Uh, to get to know their roles and to get to know where everything is so they can do it without having to think about it. So we started here at 40% and we'll build up fairly quickly over time. And what proportion of those in terms of um, passengers and, of course, the crew and the staff that you have aboard are vaccinated? 
Um, well, on, on this cruise, it's been 99% wow. um, of um, everybody on board has been vaccinated. The vaccines are really freeing. They're a game changer. And um, while this one is a particularly high number because our guests really want to be vaccinated, we're determined to have 90 plus percent on all of our cruises. And we think that gives people a great deal of comfort about the safety and, and freedom to act normal. What's unique about this cruise is just how normal it is, how this is what we did before and we're doing it again. So what about mask wearing to your point about how normal it's going to be for those people that are watching and thinking, I love cruises. I want to go back on a cruise. How different just in terms of the day to day will it be? Do they have to wear masks? Just give us a sense of some of the protocols. Um, So um, uh, actually, I think what's remarkable is how little different it was from a year and a half ago. Uh, Masks are are not required. um, just as elsewhere, some choose to wear them. And um, if you're not vaccinated, uh, it's recommended. But uh, since almost everybody on board is vaccinated, uh, nobody is wearing a mask except the crew because we are being cautious. And um, um, most of the things that have changed are behind the scenes. Things like the air conditioning has changed. The medical center has been enhanced. But basically, you're the only real thing and everybody talks about the buffet and the buffet is exactly the way it was before except now um instead of you uh reaching in with the tongs and serving yourself we have extra crew that serve you um and the buffet seems to be everybody's focal point and um it's essentially where it was before so I'd say what is truly remarkable and what people are commenting to me is, 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 how, is how unchanged it is. I'm fascinated by the buffet. I, I feel like that's one of the things where at the beginning of the pandemic, we thought that will never come back. Are people comfortable with that as long as somebody else is serving them? Um, yes, I think it is um, because we have several things. We are able to control our environment in a way you can't do anywhere else. So first, we can keep the virus off the ship, not absolutely, totally, but largely because everybody uh, or such a large percentage is vaccinated. Um, But we also have other things. We have testing capabilities. We have contact tracing. So um, even if there is a case that comes through the vaccines and through the prior testing, we can isolate it and make sure it doesn't ruin everybody's cruises. And that's the beauty. So we can actually do better than you can do anywhere on land. That was our objective. uh, And I think we're going to be able to achieve that. And final question about the financials, to your point. I mean, you're keeping capacity down to 40 percent. I assume staffing levels to a certain degree, whether it's medical facilities, cleaning staff, for example, actually were perhaps more rather than less than pandemic. Do you even break even on these cruises, Richard, or is it just a case of, look, let us get back out there. We'll burn some money, perhaps less than we were when we weren't sailing at all. And we'll we'll manage through this period until we get back to normal. Well, um, starting up is better than what we were doing right. with zero revenue. And, and But um, no, we really need a much more normal operation. And that's going to take a little while to get there. But the pent-up demand is so great that I don't think it's going to take that long before um, uh, we're seeing that. Our forward bookings, especially for 22 and 23, 
we've sort of in our minds said 2020, 2021, those are disastrous years. But the longer term, 2022, 2023, are going to be terrific. And um, um, so we're really preparing ourselves for that. And, and we're learning while we're that? doing it. Yeah, I'm sure. But the bookings the reflect bookings that? Reflect that. People want, you know, the, the bookings do reflect that. People are tired of being stuck at home. They want to get out. And, and we're seeing that in our bookings. Fingers crossed it all goes well. Enjoy the sale. Richard Vain, fantastic to have you on. Chairman and CEO of Royal Caribbean there. Thank you, sir. Right, the market opens next. Stay with us. first move, U.S. markets are up and running this Monday and a nice warm-up for the week in tech with the Nasdaq hitting fresh all-time highs. The S&P 500 also hitting records too. After rising at more than 2.5% last week, it's best showing in fact since February. Reflation sectors like banks and energy are a little bit run down today after last week's run-up. That said, lots of catalysts for banks, including the prospect of more fiscal infrastructure spending and future rate rises, which of course means as a bank, you can charge more for lending. Banks also expect to announce new dividend hikes and buybacks later today after passing Fed stress tests last week. Airlines also on the reopening runway. United announcing today that it's on track to post its first monthly profit since the pandemic began. Wall Street, however, doesn't expect United to post a full year profit until next year. Now, the Vegas Strip's new casino is, fittingly enough, a whopping bet. $4.3 billion, in fact, as its owners count on a swift recovery for Sin City. Resort World's Las Vegas opened last week with all the fanfare you'd expect. It's the first new addition to the Strip in more than a decade. Scott Sibella is the president of Resorts World Las Vegas, and he joins us from the resort. Scott, fantastic to have you with us. Eight years in the making. Talk us through what visitors can expect. And are you hoping to catch the recovery wave of people coming back to Las Vegas? Yeah, absolutely. We're so excited. We opened Thursday night. It was a fabulous opening. Over uh, 15,000 people were waiting to um, come into the property, and the feedback's been great. And it's just great for the city to see that that people are coming back. It's been a tough year and a half on all of us, but it's just exciting for all of us. I mean, this is clearly early, early, early days, but what are you seeing in terms of demand and, and booking as people recognize that you're now open for business? Oh, it's just off to a great start. Um, just the visitations, even the local market. Everybody's come down to visit the property. Again, the feedback's been tremendous, uh, all positive. And again, I think it's just great that it's history that we're doing it at this time. It's not only going to help resorts, but it's going to help Las Vegas bounce back and recover through this, you know, terrible times. So we're really excited about that. How concerned are you about just managing the COVID risks, making sure that people are protected. I mean, what have you put in place even just in the last several months just to make sure that when people come, they're safe? Yeah, health and safety was our top priority from day one, even before the pandemic. So when it comes to air quality, uh, how we clean the rooms, how you interact with the guests, how we used uh, technology with your phones and, and do things like that was, again, our number one priority. So we're taking that in consideration. And um, we're making sure when, when um, uh, visitors do come that they are safe. Uh, the employees with masks are following all the guidelines. But right now, I think people just want to celebrate. You know, it's been a tough year and a half, like I keep mentioning. And, and Vegas is no better place to come than um, anywhere in the city to, to just 
celebrate all the, all the things that have happened in the past. Yeah, let's forget COVID, please, if we possibly can. I mean, one of the things that we've seen throughout the pandemic is the shift to cashless technology. And I know you brand yourself as being the first cashless casino. Talk to me about the digitized gambling experience, because this is fascinating to me. How does that work? Yeah, we're, yeah, we're really excited about that. We Again, we took advantage of technology. So we have cashless systems in, on the casino floor at the slots and table games. So everything's on your e-wallet. Walk up to the table, swipe your card. We give you your chips. You play, swipe it when you're done, and you can just move from one table to another, to a slot machine, to a restaurant, and it's all on your phone. And they're all RFID chips. So the only one in Las Vegas to have this and uh, a state-of-the-art system. What capacity do you have at the resort for people coming to stay? Just to give us a sense, I'm just looking at the scale of the investment here and just wondering, you know, how long does it take to recoup some of the costs, particularly given, as we've discussed, some of the challenges that we're facing with the early stages of recovery here from from COVID? Well, yeah, it's going to take a little time to recover, but we're not going to ramp up. You know, these properties are set up today to... um, uh, make money right away. Now we're going to ramp up on our occupancy. We opened up Thursday purposely to get ready for the 4th. We mm. think it's going to be the biggest 4th of July that Las Vegas has ever seen. Wow. Uh, there's a big fireworks. So we'll be at 100% this weekend, which is amazing when you just open a property seven days before. Uh, but we're ready for it and we're excited to uh, have everybody come this uh, 4th of July. I mean, room rates begin, I believe, at $149 a night. That's midweek. What's the most expensive room that you have, Scott? Well, so today, what we really concentrate on is that non-gaming customer. So it's not always about the gaming uh, customer when you buy these big suites. So we got suites that go for five, six, seven thousand a night. Um, but the average rate this week is over six hundred dollars just for the Fourth of July. Not only here at Resorts World, but up and down the Strip, the demands are really good on the weekends. And I think we'll see that throughout the summer and going throughout the year. And we'll start to get that midweek business back to help, um, I mean, those groups back with the midweek business through, uh, going into next year. Do you think this encourages more development? I mean, I mentioned in the introduction, this is sort of the first big development that we've seen there in more than a decade. Do you think this encourages more? Are you being watched as a, a test case now? Because as I, as I said, it's been years and years and years in the development. And actually what's been produced is sort of very different from what was first envisaged too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we, we're so excited to be on the north side of the Strip, right across the street from the new convention center. We're surrounded by luxury properties, some attractions. So we really think this is going to uh, kickstart more development here on this side of the Strip. And you saw we just, you know, the stadium just opened. A couple of new properties in Las Vegas opened smaller, but new properties. And they got the sphere under construction. So it's good signs that there's things happening here in Las Vegas. Yeah, and in homage to my uh, crypto community viewers that watch this, I did read that you'd partnered with Gemini to at some point accept Bitcoin in the future, Scott. Can you give us any hints on when people may be able to come and use digital currencies to pay for their experience, whether it's to gamble or otherwise? Yeah, we and we love that. But it, a lot of it has to do with the Gaming Control Board when they start approving these type of things. But Gemini is a, a forward-thinking company. They're state-of-the-art, just like we are. So, you know, we have a lot in common. So we started talking, formed a partnership, and a lot of discussions, but a lot has to be approved by Gaming Control Board. But a lot of good things are coming. Yes, watch this space. Scott, fantastic to have you with us. Good luck, and um, we wish you well for the 4th of July. We hope it's the biggest weekend that we've seen and people behave safely too. Scott Sibella of Resorts World Las Vegas, great to have you with us, sir. Thank you. All right, coming up here on First Move, I'm joined by fashion mogul Rebecca Minkoff. 
how she built her brand from the ground up and her rules for success. That's next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. When she first arrived in New York, Rebecca Minkov had almost nothing to her name. Fast forward, and now she's the chief creative director and co-founder of the luxury brand that bears her name. So how did she do it? Well, she breaks it all down in her new book, Fearless, The New Rules for Unlocking Creativity, Courage and Success. And I'm pleased to say Rebecca Minkov joins us now. Rebecca, fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you so much for um, joining us. I I read an interview with you that said it was meant to be 20 steps in this book, and actually there's, there's a final 21st and that is it's endless success is being able to keep going and I think if anything illustrates that it's how you reacted in the face of the pandemic and the challenges that presented to you for sure and thank you for having me I think when I was looking at writing this book in the middle of a pandemic my business had taken a hit by over 70 percent evaporated and gone So I'm sitting there rebuilding my business, having to apply the same rules I applied to start my business. And so I wanted to really talk about that in that chapter, that I use the same rules 20 20 years later to rebuild my business and uh, achieve success during the pandemic. So I thought that that was a hope for company. Yeah, I love this chapter. Just explain to our viewers what those rules are. So I think that fear stops us from pursuing our passions, our pursuits, and I wanted to give simple rules, going with your gut, not asking permission for things, being willing to take risks because sometimes you win, sometimes you learn, and really reframing failure because I think if we can take more risk, we'll be a lot more successful in whatever we do. You know, this is part of um, Rule 17, and I love this as well, and you say getting friendly with failure. For most people, the fear of failure, it has huge financial implications that can stop them even trying, even if they think they have a great idea. And one of those things is that came out of the book for me was that you said, look, I'm never not afraid. You know, I've launched more than 60 collections. I've hosted more than 30 fashion shows and I'm I'm frightened before every single one. And actually, that's okay. Yes, I think we have to get comfortable with the idea that fear was there. It's hardwired into us to protect us from bears and danger. But when it comes to our pursuits, you have to recognize that that emotion isn't probably appropriate and to get on with it anyways. So the goal of the book is that you don't read it and suddenly you have no fear. It's that you read it and you don't let fear stop you. And I think, you know, taking risks and failure is just part of being alive. And so if we learn to embrace it and sort of run toward it, You get comfortable with it. The same way that I want to have great arms and a bicep, I got to go to the gym every day. So you have to continually put yourself (laughs) in a face of risk. Yeah, you're not going to talk yourself into that when it requires action. Um, Just apply it to, because again, I was reading what happened with your business and how you had to react incredibly quickly. I mean, you had orders from department stores that literally disappeared overnight. You had to close stores. You were like, okay, well, now I have to be online. And somehow we have to dramatically pivot this business and and provide what our customers require and just do it in a completely different way or a more accelerated way in in places that you know you already had but nowhere near the size that you're now doing or were doing subsequently yeah we had to get smart real fast we said okay we're day traders whatever we do today is what we can eat on tomorrow and so this group of 25 of us galvanized together and said okay we all have five jobs now i'm the chief copywriter marketer content creator, influencer, 
Um, and it took, you know, everything. It took figuring out what would our customer respond to knowing she didn't need a bag during the pandemic, you know, and how do we service her? So it became more about selling. It became about connecting. It became about inspiring her. And we did that a lot through social, but we launched a text message program, which was incredibly successful. And uh, we promoted everywhere we could, whether it was cross promotions, partnering with other brands, you name it, nothing was off the table. And we said, let's take the risk. You know, other companies might be scared right now to, to lean in, but we're gonna we're gonna be there for our customer. And if she decides to buy a bag, that's incredible. You know, we often talk about this um, recession, particularly in the United States, but beyond beyond as being a, a she session that actually it's impacted women far more. And we talk about this show in terms of startups, particularly for women, being such a tiny piece of the venture capital money that goes out there. Just for budding entrepreneurs out there that are perhaps listening to this, are thinking about reading your book or have read your book. What's the most important thing as, a, as an entrepreneur and as a woman fighting for capital? And do you think anything about about what we've been through perhaps changes perspective of those that have money to invest and perhaps look for people that may not have got cash in the past to help them? I think the pandemic has given us an opportunity to wake up and say there are tons of inequities within our infrastructure. And so now more than ever, women should have access to that capital. It's still gonna be a fight. It's why I co-founded the Female Founder Collective to provide education and access for these women to sources of capital. And I think that if we can begin to first educate women on how to get capital, why you should have it, who shouldn't get it, I think is even equally more important. We're all, we're all not meant to be unicorns. We're all not meant to IPO. You can have a small, beautiful business that provides for your lifestyle. And I think it's on, uh, you know, it's on us to really band together and find also allies who recognize that women should be 50-50. Since 3% of capital only flows to women right now, we have a long way to go. I think we, we band together and we make a big dent. What's been the greatest challenge, Rebecca? I mean, there's been all sorts and people will understand that if they, if they read the book. But what do you see as the greatest challenge that you overcame on this journey? You know, I came in as an outsider. Uh, I was not deemed by an editor-in-chief as the new golden darling. Uh, I was really brought up here through my consumer, and it was a new time. You know, social media didn't exist. So how do you cut through? How do you get in and successful without the old ways of how the fashion industry worked? And so I think that was a huge challenge. And once people began to look around and say, wait, we should talk to our consumer, we were doing it. And so I think, you know, I wouldn't be here today without her, but it was definitely hard to put a stake in the ground and claim my space as someone who came completely from the outside. Yeah, and I think that applies in any industry. If you're not what you think fits, you can still make dramatic changes and you can still get in there. You just have to be a fearless, which I think goes to the point of the book. Now, I want to ask very quickly about fearless fashion post-COVID. What are women going to need more than anything else as we transition back to, we hope, some kind of post-pandemic lifestyle, in your view? Yes, yeah, so we actually had taken a pause on our footwear during the pandemic and people weren't leaving their houses, so why put shoes on them? Um, but we relaunched our shoe business just uh, back in May and little heels, two and a half inches, we sold out immediately. And what we found is she's ready to learn how to, she's ready to, learn how to walk again. Um, and then I think, you know, easy, breezy, nothing tight right now. We're used to our sweatpants. so. We have a lot of incredible flowy dresses that um, are short and fun and show off the legs, but you can still relax as if you're wearing sweatpants. 
<laughs> yeah. So the little kitten heel on the way to the enormous heels once we get back out there. Yay. Rebecca yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you for talking about your book and your experiences. Designer thank and you. author of Fearless. Thank you. All right. He's fast. He's furious. And he's financially reliable. Vin Diesel takes the Fast and Furious franchise out of this world, both in the movie and at the box office. That's next. You would think that blasting into space and back might be enough of a weekend activity, but the stars of the latest Fast and Furious film were able to do that and pull off a pandemic feat. The latest movie, F9, has just racked up the biggest weekend opening at the box office since the last Star Wars movie back in 2019 taking in an estimated $70 million in North America. Frank Pelota is here with all the details. Fast, furious and financially lucrative, F9. Also a bonus for Universal as well, because a big decision to postpone this for a year and wait until this moment to launch. Did you see it, Frank? I did see it, and Uh I understood why it did really well this weekend. It made $70 million domestically. It's crossed $400 million globally. And that's because this is a movie you want to see on the biggest screen possible. So this weekend had a lot of big winners. Basically, the theaters were had a big win because they had, for the first time, really a true blue blockbuster. I mean, Quiet Place earlier in May did pretty well, but this was the biggest since 2019, the biggest in Star Wars, the biggest in two years. That's insane. But as you were saying, this is a huge win for Universal as well because they had to decide at the beginning of the pandemic, we're going to push this, not a couple weeks, not a couple months, an entire year. And at the time, that was really kind of controversial. A lot of people were like, what are you doing? But they did it, and in hindsight, it looks like it paid off. Yeah, it certainly does. And the next crucial test, Black Widow, July the 9th. And that's going to be a double release, I believe, streaming and cinemas, whereas this... Of course, F9 has that six-week leeway before you can access it via a streaming service. What difference do we think that's going to make? It's going to be really interesting to see. This is why this was an important test for theaters, because this is a traditional release. And then it's going to ride into the 4th of July holiday here in the States. And then after that, you're going to have Marvel, which is the biggest blockbuster brand in all of entertainment. So you're going to have the next couple weeks really tell us what the rest of this year and potentially what the future of movies looks like. And we're going to really see if there's any sort of impact on people staying home. Remember, you got to pay $30 to watch Black Widow at home. So there is definitely a choice. Do you want to spend $30 and sit home or do you want to spend $30 and have a night out? That's what people are going to have to decide. And that's what we're going to find out in two weeks. Yeah, I was just doing the mass $70 million divided by $30, million. People have to watch it, the equivalent. I don't know how that's helping me, but I was just excited to do the calculation. Frank Floater, we shall see is the answer. Thank you so much for that. All right. And finally, on first move, is the truth out there? And what does the U.S. government know about it? Well, a remarkable unclassified report to Congress has been released detailing, quote, unidentified aerial phenomena or UFOs to you and I. The report neither confirms nor denies alien life and certainly isn't making conclusions about spaceships. But it is, quote, one small step in acknowledging UFOs are real physical phenomena worthy of proper scientific analysis. Hey, I don't believe it. There's more there. There's more there. I want the full report. I'm I'm not sure we got it. Hmm. All right, that's it for the show. Stay safe. Connect the World with Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you tomorrow.
all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number smart beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.